Okay. Hello, 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 family. Hello, everybody. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? You are tuned into The Real RX, a platform created by five uniquely talented physicians with one main mission, and that's to educate and empower our communities to do and feel better. And here is where we have real talk about trending health topics and your problems or issues in health and even the healthcare system. We'll take you behind the brains of an ophthalmologist, a family doctor, an OBGYN, a healthcare advocate, and an ER doctor to discuss the real things that ail you. Join us for another episode of The Real RX. Hey, everybody. How are you all doing? So today, guys, we are going to be talking all about sickle cell disease. I am Dr. Nicole. I am going to be your host today. Thank you to all of us who are tuning in live on Facebook. Thanks in advance to those of you who will catch the replay. And also a special thank you to our podcast listeners. So why don't we start by uh, just going around so that the ladies can introduce themselves So we'll start with Dr. Felicia. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Felicia Sumner. I'm a board-certified family medicine physician and wellness strategist. I'm dedicated to breaking down the massive wall between doctors and patients so you can live your best life and be well, whole, energized, and loving life. Glad to be here. And Dr. Anika? Hi, everybody. I am Dr. Anika Goodwin a board-certified ophthalmologist, and your vision is my priority. Dr. Stan. Hey, it's Dr. Stan. I am your board-certified obstetrician gynecologist here to help women navigate through pregnancy and to also help our women through their gynecological issues. And as I said before, I'm Dr. Nicole Rochester. I am a board-certified pediatrician, a professional health advocate, and the CEO of Your GPS Doc. My mission is to help patients and family caregivers navigate the complicated healthcare system. So you all may notice that one of our co-hosts is missing, Dr. Kimberly. So she is a busy emergency room physician, and she is actually saving lives right now as we speak. So shout out to Dr. Kimberly. Hopefully she will be able to pop in. Hey, Kim. She's going to try really hard, you all, to join us at some point uh, before the end of the broadcast. So we definitely send her our love, and hopefully she's not too inundated with saving lives in the ER. So um, today is World Sickle Cell Day, and um, that's why we wanted to talk about this topic. So you all know that we are your best friends, your girlfriends, your homegirls around the block, but... We are also fairly nerdy doctors. So I did want to spend just a minute or so um, just explaining sickle cell. I know that many of you may already be familiar with it, but for those of you who um, aren't really sure what sickle cell disease is, I wanted to spend just a teeny bit of time at the beginning with an introduction. So um, sickle cell disease is an inherited disorder of the red blood cells. And you know, when we look at blood, blood is red, we think, oh, it's just all red. But your blood is actually made up of more than just red blood cells. And we won't get into all of that today. But sickle cell specifically affects your red blood cells. And the purpose of your red blood cells is to travel throughout the body and to carry oxygen from your lungs to your tissues and organs and the rest of your body. 
And so normally, and those of us who don't have sickle cell, our red blood cells are circular and they're very flexible. And so they can kind of squeeze in between these little teeny tiny blood vessels, you know, veins, arteries, capillaries, and they can travel where they need to go to provide adequate blood flow. But in patients with sickle cell, due to an abnormal gene, they have an abnormal protein uh, in their hemoglobin, which is part of what makes up the red blood cell. And as a result of that protein, instead of their cells being nice and circular, they literally are like a crescent shape, like a crescent moon, or what they call a sickle shape. And that's why the disease has its name, sickle cell disease. And so not only are those cells abnormally shaped, but they also are very sticky and very rigid. And so what happens as a result of that is that they can clog up blood vessels and prevent blood flow and oxygen from getting to the tissues. So that's just kind of a general overview. So we see a lot of complications with sickle cell. We're going to talk about some of those tonight. But ultimately, many of the complications that we all see are a direct result of this clogging of the blood vessels. Okay. Ooh, look at Dr. Felicia getting fancy on us. <laughs> I love it. All right. So now you have your schematic. Thank you so much, Dr. Felicia. It's very helpful to see it in person. All right. So we know that, you know, the, one of the reasons that we're talking about this on The Real Rx is, you know, obviously we're African-American females. We know that a large percentage of our audience is um, African-Americans and other people of color. And this disease is uh, quite prevalent among people of color, among people of African descent. But you don't have to be Black to have sickle cell disease. Um, I, I definitely have taken care of patients who were not people of color, but it does predominantly affect people of color. And so that's one reason why we really wanted to have this discussion. So guys, if you have any personal experiences, if you have any comments, you know, we like this to be interactive. So please drop your questions, drop your comments below uh, during the Facebook Live, and we will do our best to address them. So let's open it up to the panel, to our ladies of The Real Rx, and um, let me know if you all have anything that you want to discuss. Specifically, why don't we start with talking about some of the complications that we see related to sickle cell disease? Who wants to go first? I'd like to hear from Dr. San, because as a mother, um, <laughs> I know that, and as a physician, I've seen it myself, a number of mothers who have sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait, it affect pregnancy um, in a number of ways. And I think that it's pretty important for us to maybe chat about that a little bit. Um, so the easiest way for me to actually kind of talk about it is to go from the beginning. And so whenever you come in for your prenatal visit, the first thing that a lot of patients say is, oh my God, I had to get a million tubes drawn. I had to get all these tubes drawn. They took half of my blood out. What is all this blood being you know, used to be tested for? And one of the things that we are testing for is to see if you have sickle cell disease or the sickle cell trait. Um, so that's you know day one. And the reason why we want to know that is because we actually have to manage these patients a little bit differently. Um, these patients are at a higher risk of actually developing kidney infections, which can be devastating in a pregnant woman because her immune system is already down to actually protect the baby. So whenever you come in and we see that you have sickle cell or sickle cell trait, we'll always take urine from you just to make sure that you're not having um, an asymptomatic urinary tract infection. 
We're also checking to make sure that you're not dehydrated because in pregnancy, you automatically, your body is easier to dehydrate. That's why we always tell you, you know, drink eight glasses of water, which I did not, but that's a whole different story. Um, but drink eight <laughs> glasses of water because the more hydrated you are, it actually helps these sickle cells to actually pass through the passages that they're supposed to. Um, so we tell them that a lot. So when we get their urine, we can tell by their urine to say, okay, whether or not you're dehydrated. Now, the biggest thing that we are worried about is when women go into sickle cell crises, your red blood cells are actually used to what? Transfer oxygen. Guess who needs oxygen? The mom and the baby um, through placental trans, um, what you call it? Trans, what's the word y'all? Transfer, when it transfer um, between the placenta and Don't the mom. ask us. So, <laughs> You know, so we're definitely monitoring that. So sometimes when these women are not sometimes when these women actually go into crises, you know, we are definitely worried about the oxygenation to themselves and to the baby because the baby still needs oxygenation. Another thing that we are severely worried about is um, what is it called? Um, Word just went out of my head. Um, the chest. Oh goodness. Um, acute chest syndrome. Acute chest syndrome. So patients are um, more um, prone to actually developing acute ch um, chest syndrome, which can actually be fatal in someone who is, you know, not pregnant and at their healthiest with sickle cells. So again, when you're pregnant, you're actually, your immune system is actually suppressed just to protect this actual baby. And then the last thing that we are really concerned about is pain management. And I have so many women who come in and they end up with the sickle cell crisis and they're a lot of pain. But they don't want to take pain medication because they're like, oh, my goodness, it's going to affect the baby. I don't want to take this. So mm -hmm. they sit there and they suffer in the pain. And so that's also something that's a very um, kind of sticky area. Me personally, I will treat the pain and I will treat the pain with as little um, medication or pain medications as possible. But I'm going to give you what you need. I'm not going to say, well, you probably should get four morphine, but just because you're pregnant, I'm only going to give you one and just make you suffer. I mean, we do monitor the mom. We do monitor be the baby whenever they're going through these crises, but pain management is pretty hard in these pregnant women. Um, you know, if any of y'all follow me, I'm very big on maternal um, mortality. And, you know, maternal mortality also deals with the treatment of pregnant women. And a lot of these women are treated unfairly. They really are just because they are pregnant and they are dealing with pain. And so definitely um, those are just the four areas in pregnancy are the four things, you know, big things. When you come in, make sure that you are tested for it. Um, make sure that your urine is actually being tested. Um, you know, pain crises to make sure that your pain management is actually appropriate. Awesome. And something that came up, you know, when we were talking offline, um, Dr. San, I'd love for you to address briefly as we talked about um, the importance of pregnant women and even before pregnancy, knowing your sickle cell status. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you all manage that as well as the partner of a mom who may test positive for a sickle cell trait? Um, so like I said, whenever you go to your first prenatal visit, you absolutely should make sure that you're getting gel electrophoresis to make sure that you don't have um, different thalassemia, so different um, blood diseases, and one of them is sickle cell. So I would definitely ask to make sure. Now, the thing is, um, a lot with medicine, and I'm pretty sure that um, my colleagues can tell you that usually when something comes back negative, or, um, well, usually not benign, but when something comes back negative, that we usually don't call. You will be like, oh, no news is good news. But those are one of the, that's one of the tests that you actually want to call and say, 
how did mine come out? Was it negative? Am I actually a sickle cell trait? So yes, you might not have the disease, but you might have the trait and you might be on the spectrum to where you have absolutely no symptoms of actually having the trait. And so you want to know your status. So if you do find out that, hey, I have the trait, then you actually want to find the father of the child to see if they have the trait. Because if we all remember the little planet square, you know, if two parents actually have the trait, then they have what a 50% chance of actually having a child that actually has the disease. And then you still can actually pass on the trait to the um, child, 25% um, passing the trait and then a 25% of the child not getting the trait or the disease. See y'all, I remember this stuff. Go ahead, bit. girl. You show off. <laughs> <laughs> so you definitely want to know because these children can come out very sick. And, you know, if you don't know the status of yourself and don't know the status of the dad, you know, later on the baby can start to develop illnesses and, you know, nobody really knows what's going on. Good and so point. you definitely want to make one, you know your status. And two, y'all, I, I ain't going to go there. I'm going to go there. So some <laughs> of y'all, you know, like some of my patients, they come in and they have no either idea who um, the father of their child is, or they do know, but they are not going to be a part of the pregnancy. They're not together anymore. That should not stand in the way of still finding out the status of the dad. Because again, this can affect the baby. It could absolutely so you can bring his little mad self in and y'all can roll your eyes and all that stuff. <laughs> or the dad don't even have to come in with you, like for our office in particular. You know, we just tell the dad, here's the, you know, give him the slip and he can come in, or we have the slip at the front desk, he can come in and get tested, or he can go to his own physician and get tested. But it is so important for you to know your status because it absolutely can affect your child. It absolutely can affect your baby. So I personally, um, I have trait. And I never knew I had trait until I was in college. I was absolutely clueless. Wow. Um, once I did find out and I was in a serious relationship that would le likely lead to marriage, then I made him get tested. I said, you, we have to know um, because we have to make that decision based on the knowledge of what our risk truly is. So you, you need to know. Also, as I have gone on different um, vacations or visit different places. Uh, I visited Africa and we went, uh, we were in Tanzania and we went up higher to a higher elevation with sickle cell trait. That makes me more prone to having issues or maybe having a more difficult time with heights at higher altitudes. Um, but just to throw a positive pearl out there, one good thing was People with sickle cell trait, and this is the reason why, I don't know if somebody wants to go into this a little bit more, this is the reason why it's more common in Blacks, is because it is a, has a protective effect against malaria. Yes. We were over there. Um, I went ahead and got my vaccine just to be careful, but that is why more African Americans have sickle cell trait. It is a protective trait against malaria. Which is so cool. I mean, you know, it's a horrible disease, but the fact that, like you said, it renders protection against a, a disease that's very prevalent in African countries mm -hmm. is just awesome. Mm -hmm. Before I have Dr. Felicia chime in, I just want to remind you all that you are watching or listening to The Real Rx. Thank you to those of you who have tuned in live. We're talking about sickle cell disease today. If you have questions or comments, for those of you on Facebook, please feel free to drop them below. So Dr. Felicia, what are your thoughts and your experiences with sickle cell? I, uh, you know, I've seen it more so uh, in the ER population through my training and when I was working in a more rural area. 
Um, sickle cell tends to be handled a lot of times by either the pediatrician um, or as someone gets older with that uh, condition by a hematologist um, in most cases, which is like a, a blood specialist, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, but it's interesting because from a functional medicine perspective, you know, I try to keep an eye on, you know, alternative routes out there. And I'm not sure if uh, you guys are aware of this, but there is a natural or herbal medicine out there that a lot of folks in Nigeria have been using called Niprosan. Um, and it Ooh. contains a lot of herbs that were thought to have some anti-sickling properties like garlic and papaya. Um, unfortunately, I think there were a lot of studies that proved that it was not as effective as many people thought, at least from the most recent studies. So I would definitely at least want to say that if you're dealing, if anyone's dealing with, you know, the pain and other complications associated with sickle cell, um, that you don't have to suffer. There are, you know, possibly some things that you could do to improve your pain. Unfortunately, from what we see, Niprosan is not going to limit your risk of complications. But we have seen that um, vitamin D deficiency is really common and can play a big role with sickle cell folks. Of course, you know, it's associated with bone disease. So I always recommend just about everybody who is, you know, um, like me or even lighter than me get their vitamin D checked, uh, but also even iron levels, of course, can be really low in the bone marrow for folks with sickle cell. And we find that um, zinc is really, uh, tends to be a rather common deficiency in sickle cell folks and magnesium, um, which has been linked to increased sickling. So I think that um, all of these, um, definitely sickle cell patients should keep in mind and ask their doctor about getting those things checked because again, um, everyone's different, you know, like when someone comes in with pain to the ER, it's not fair to assume that your pain is just as um, severe or not as severe as the person in the other bed. Um, and the same way for me as a primary care doctor, uh, I think that it's important for us to approach everyone differently. And so maybe asking your doctor about getting some of those nutrients checked could help uh, with some of the complications and pain, especially. So wow. can I ask a question? Just I want to kind of mention it because that's very interesting. So for my patients that I actually, you know, find to have sickle cell disease or a sickle cell trait, should I automatically check like their vitamin D and things like that? I think that uh, there's no harm, no foul. <laughs> and so it would be worth it if you want to be, you know, a little bit more comprehensive with your patient. Um, and they're, especially if their insurance is covering it, then you could, you know, make a big difference for them with regards to their pain and potential complications along the way. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's, I always thank learn something. You're looking like a superstar. I'm going to look real smart. When <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> you all, we, we do not learn this information in medical school and it's really sad. And so like every yeah. week we get pearls from Dr. Felicia, from a functional medicine standpoint. So I, I really- Girl, I learn that. something new every day. So. <laughs> it's a great so goal. We have a question. Um, Dr. Paul Hopkins, thank you for watching and for asking the question. So he says, I would also suggest when testing for sickle cell that also check for G6PD enzyme deficiency. It used to be tested in coordination. Can you speak on that topic? So let me just back up just a little bit because you guys have been hearing us talk about trait and disease, and we really didn't, you know, we're making some assumptions perhaps about your uh, knowledge about sickle cell. So just to briefly back up a little, 
Um, I mentioned that it is an inherited disorder and Dr. San very nicely took us all back to the genetics. And so you have to have two abnormal copies of this gene in order to have sickle cell. And so there's a sickle, a, a gene for sickle and then there's a gene for hemoglobin A, which is the normal gene. So when we say trait, what we mean is that you got one normal gene from one parent and then you got a sickle gene from your other parent. And that's what's called trait. Sickle cell disease requires you, as Dr. Sam mentioned earlier, to have two copies of that abnormal gene. And so that means you got one abnormal one from one parent and one from the other. And we're not gonna get into all of the other details, but there are other forms of sickle cell disease, just so that you all know. So you could get hemoglobin S from one parent and one of the other many abnormal forms of hemoglobin, one of which is called beta thalassemia, which again, we're not going to get into a lot of details today. Oh, you're about to make my head spin, girl. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if you, oh, thank you. Oh, Felicia, I just love it, Dr. Felicia. So yeah, if you pair one sickle gene with any of the other abnormal hemoglobin genes, you can still have signs that are really exactly like sickle cell. So to go back to Dr. Hopkins' question, um, he is talking about G6PD, and that's not necessarily the topic for today, but that is also um, a genetic disorder similar to sickle cell. If you have G6PD deficiency, it's an enzyme deficiency that can lead to the breakdown of your blood cells. And so that can be a cause of um, unexplained jaundice in babies, as can um, sickle cell. And so it is something that is tested. And I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that it is part of the newborn metabolic screen in most. Oh, Dr. Sands says no. So let me, I'm just going to do a quick story on that. So yeah. my son, um, when I had him, um, we took him to his prenatal visit. It was actually kind of scary. So the day that we took him to his prenatal visit, he was fine. Um, they, you know, drew his blood, whatever, for his Billy Rubin. And I remember we were going to Walmart. We were driving from Walmart and the doctor called me and was just like, are you sitting down? And I'm like, yeah, my husband's here. I'm sitting in the car. And she was like, you need to go to the hospital immediately. So I'm like, what's going on? So she was like, his numbers were like off the charts high. So we get to the um, hospital. Uh, well, we get home. Uh, then we're on our way to the hospital. And like, as soon as we got home, I could see like my son just went from like, you know, this little springy newborn baby. So he was like showing signs of being like, just really weak and lethargic. So we get there. And the first thing that my doctor ordered was she was brilliant. She was like, I want him to have a G6P um, testing because his numbers are so high. What's wrong? And she didn't have privileges at this hospital. And this doctors and these little residents was like, that's not what's wrong with him. We're not ordering. And they refused to order it. What? So I sat there for days, y'all, days, waiting for my son's Billy Rubin to come down. And so crazy, like I'm so big with advocacy. Then I was a resident. I was accused of being too tired and too stressed and a new mom to feed my child. And so they were like, you're not feeding your baby. Oh, it's no, they didn't. Mm. Oh, this was big. So like they had me and my husband, they called psych on me and everything. And I'm sitting there like, what's going on? And so I just kept saying, like, we're on like day four. And I was like, my doctor just said, order this test. And I was like, if you just order it, let's just see. Because yeah. it's not coming down. They finally ordered it. It came back positive, And they never apologized. Mm, they wow. called me. Wow. And they were like, you're depressed. And we can see that, you know, in the middle of the night, you don't wake up to feed the baby. And which wasn't true. I woke up every single time they came in to feed them. But it was this one nurse who was like, you're exhausted. 
rested. She was like, I will feed the baby. You go to sleep. So I went to sleep on one feeding and she went back and told them that I was sleeping through the feedings and I was depressed and I needed a psych consult. Wow. But wow. either way, my son does have B6PD deficiency and he was not tested for, I don't know if it's state by state, but he was born in New York. Yeah, I was going to say, because I'm pretty sure in the last maybe two to three years, it was added to the state newborn screen in Maryland. I don't know about the other states. I do know that sickle cell is universally tested now in all 50 states. So I do know that for sure. So for those of you who are pregnant. Well, it's been the last two years. I know Lola didn't get tested for it. Well, how do, have you looked at her full newborn screen? Her, you know, I, the, the reason why I know she wasn't tested for it is yeah. because she pretty much went down the same road of high bilirubin. Hers wasn't as high as LJ's, but it was pretty high. We were almost admitted, but okay, I was crazy and I kind of like refused it. So I had to come back every day for her to get her little foot, <laughs> um, what you call it, cut. And so one time they did try to draw her blood and they weren't able to get the blood. So they was like, well, we'll just draw her blood later to see when she's older to see if she has G6PD deficiency and she still hasn't been tested for it. But wow. I know for that. I'm going to have to follow up on that. Well, you know, Dr. Sand brought up something really interesting and I think that would be a good segue. So, you know, she said that she was a resident. Clearly she's African-American, you know, she's youngish and, you know, she started <laughs> I'm, yeah, she's she's eternally 26, y'all. Forever and ever. Amen. So, <laughs> but she was t- sharing that story about, you know, that her being labeled basically as, mm-hmm. you know, sounds like they were labeling you as an unfit mother. And I think this is a perfect segue mm-hmm. to talk more about some of the challenges that patients with sickle cell have. And so one of the complications that they face on a fairly regular basis is something called a vaso-occlusive crisis or a pain crisis. So, you know, earlier we talked about those blood vessels and the sticky sickle blood and it gets stuck and then you don't get blood flow. And so when you don't get proper blood flow, whether it's your hands, whether it's your arms, your legs, even your chest, your stomach, the result of that is severe pain. And, um, you know, you all know that there is an opiate crisis across the entire United States. And and unfortunately, patients with chronic pain syndromes um, are deeply affected by this. And you guys have probably seen this on social media. You may have friends and family members who have been impacted. And even before there was an opiate crisis, you know, personally, I've taken care of so many adolescents um, who felt that they were being discriminated against and that, you know, the doctors didn't believe that they had pain. So, I'd love to, um, you know, kind of shift gears a little bit and just talk a little bit about chronic pain and particularly among people of color and implicit bias and any any other thoughts that you all have on this topic. I really wish Dr. Kim were here because as an ER physician, they are many times the people who are seeing these sicklers in crisis first because it doesn't always happen during normal business hours and these yeah kids and adolescents are in such pain that they end up in the emergency room. And sometimes um, you can end up in emergency rooms that may not even be in your hometown if you're traveling. But as emergency room doctors will tell you, they work shifts. So there is no consistency. So even if you have been to this emergency room many times, you may not see the same doctor. And you go through that same thing where they're questioning whether or not 
you are drug seeking or yes. you're making this up because there is no obvious thing causing pain. It's not like you have a gash on your arm. It's not like you have something that is big and swollen and you have, have a fracture. There's none of these things. There are not physical signs. There is simply the person, the patient telling you that they're in pain. And so we have to learn to give our patients the benefit of the doubt, seek the whole story. Just because there's an opioid crisis does not mean every single patient that comes in is drug seeking. Absolutely. That's so true. I mean, I, um, I have enough stories of, especially my time training in the ER, even in the pediatric ERs, I'll leave those hospitals and um, attendings unnamed, but who <laughs> you know, made a number of comments uh, just off the bat about, I know that she, you know, she's faking it or, you know, she's here all the time and just making assumptions. He's here all the time, making assumptions that, you know, they are not, experiencing real pain, but I guess similarly to childbirth or a kidney stone, unless you really have experienced it yourself, you really have no idea. Um, and I can only imagine, you know, the suffering that some people dealing with sickle cell crises, uh, pain crises are, are dealing with at those moments. And it is important, Dr. Nika, for us to just open our eyes and be empathetic and give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, because in most cases, I'm sure studies can confirm this, uh, I'm, I'm almost certain that, that uh, the majority of people are not making this up. And sadly, uh, the majority of physicians, to be quite frank, are brushing off this pain. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really terrible. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Dr. San? Mm -hmm. No. There's a question in the comments. Yeah. Um, Yvonne Miller asked, what are the actual guidelines for medical staff to determine drug seekers? You know, Yvonne, Yvonne always comes up with great questions. Her question last week just floored all of us. So thank you, Yvonne. Um, you know, there aren't really guidelines per se. I mean, the whole term drug seekers, I, I don't like it. I mean, it's, it's very derogatory. And like Dr. Felicia just said, you know, pain is a very subjective thing. So, you know, y'all all know, okay, we're, we're not going to throw our husbands under the bus, but we kind of are. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, all of we, we have all had children, the four of us. And you all know, there's a common joke that men could never have children. And I honest to God believe that that's true. So, you know, we go through childbirth and all of these other painful experiences and our, our, some of the men, I'll just say some, some of the men in our lives get a teeny little, you know, and cold. Yeah. Oh God, don't even talk about the man. Exactly. And they are like out. And so I'm, I'm, I'm making light of it when it comes to our husbands, but honestly, when it comes to patients, my point is that everybody's pain tolerance is different. So mm -hmm. I know Dr. San had a whole freaking baby without an epidural. I maybe two. Oh God. Um, I did not do that. I went into the hospital thinking I was not going to have an epidural and trust and believe I got an epidural. <laughs> I don't know if Dr. Felicia and Dr. Anika had a little help with the pain. Um, my point is that, you know, that everybody has a different pain tolerance. You know, mm -hmm. there are some people who, um, and the other thing that I learned, and I must say this as a pediatrician working in the hospital is, and I will be very honest with you all, I made this mistake early in my career, walking into the room, had a teenager with sickle cell. I asked him, you know, it's standard for us to ask, what is your pain score? And they have a numeric score. The little kids, they have faces, you know, the little tears is like a, the equivalent of a 10. 
smiley face is a zero and the older kids give you a number from zero to 10. And this young man, you know, said something like a nine or a 10, but he was on his video game. And this is back when like Mario Brothers and all that was popular. I'm dating myself. But the point is, I remember, I distinctly remember thinking he's faking. And I feel really badly saying that now. But again, this was early in my career. I didn't know any better. And as Dr. Felicia said, unfortunately, I had people above me attending who were feeding into this whole bias of not believing um, you know, our black and brown patients who were saying that they were in pain. So I say that to say that, you know, his, this boy had been dealing with pain all of his life. So if I had that same degree of pain, I'd probably be on the floor, you know, kicking and screaming and crying, but he was used to it. And so he was playing his video game. Also, mm -hmm. that was probably a way for him to, you know, to manage mm -hmm. the pain, you know, he had figured yeah. out distraction. So who am I to decide that because he's able to distract himself with a video game, that means that he's not in pain. So Yvonne, I, I don't think that there are really any guidelines. Maybe there should be. Um, there are guidelines stating. Well, you know, I can't think. So as far as find, there are guidelines now for treating pain, meaning well, yeah. that you shouldn't start straight off with like an opiate. Like somebody comes in and say that I have a pain 10 out of 10, you still shouldn't jump straight to like dilaudid. Like you mm -hmm. shouldn't go straight there. So there are, they now have come up with like steps. So, okay, fine, you start off with like an inset, and then you start off with, you know, PO narcotics, and then you add something on top of that. And then now we have Tylenol 1000 that comes like, you can give it PO or even through the IV. Mm -hmm. So now we more so have steps, but to answer your question, it's nothing universal, you know, out there for us to actually, you know, because it's so yeah. subjective. It's, it's just so very subjective. subjective. And that's the problem. It is subjective, mm -hmm. you know, and, and um, I will share with you all, you know, we, we, there are derogatory terms that are used in medicine. You know, there's a term frequent flyers that, you know, many, and again, I will admit back in the day, I have used that term. It is mm -hmm. not a nice term to use. It's, it's used to describe patients that are, you know, frequently in the emergency room, in the hospital, not just for pain, but for other things as well. But unfortunately, you know, we get jaded in medicine. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it's true. And sometimes after you've been practicing for a certain amount of time, you lose some of that compassion, some of that, um, you know, empathy that you have. And that's a big issue in medicine now. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this topic tonight, um, you know, so that we can, again, educate and empower those of you who may be suffering yourselves, for those of you who may have a family member with sickle cell you have anything to um, to add, Dr. Felicia? No, I, I think that you've, you know, you've hit the point quite well. I, I wanted to ask you a question, Dr. Nicole, if you don't mind, from a health advocacy standpoint. Um, for all of these folks who are suffering, having to go to the ER at any random point in time, especially in the middle of the night because they're dealing with, you know, significant pain, are there any tips that you can give to these people to help advocate for themselves a little better to convince their doctor in some way that their pain is real, um, records they can bring, anything of that sort? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I wish I had a lot of great advice in this area, but again, I think in, in our country, pain is just, you know, the whole pain and the opiate epidemic has just really wreaked havoc on, on patients with chronic pain. You know, I guess 
I would always say, you know, be knowledgeable um, about your disease. You know, it's almost a double-edged sword because I've had patients come to the ER and I'm a pediatrician, you guys, I'm talking about kids. Okay. I'm talking about our babies. So I can't even imagine how the adults are treated, but I've had patients come in very knowledgeable and say to the emergency room doctor, you know, this doesn't work for me. Morphine doesn't work for me. Dilaudid works better for me. Or one milligram doesn't work for me. I usually get three. And immediately the impression is he's a drug seeker. She's a drug seeker. You know, don't tell me what you need. You're coming in here. They just want Dilaudid, you know? So it's, it's literally like a catch 22, because if you are, uh, you know, you are advocating for yourself and you're trying to express to the medical team what works for you, which is totally within your right. Some people will turn that around and then decide that you're just trying to get high, you know, off of the medication. But I still always, you know, recommend that patients advocate for themselves, um, you know, just be knowledgeable about what has worked. Having someone else with you also can be helpful, you know, so either a parent or another loved one, particularly if you're in a lot of pain, you may not, you don't even have the energy to go back and forth with a provider. So mm-hmm. having someone else with you who can kind of be that voice for you, I think is incredibly helpful. And then always you can escalate, you know, if you are in a situation as a patient or a caregiver where you feel like people are ignoring you, they're treating you as if you're some type of criminal and you're not getting proper care, whether that's for pain or anything else, you can always ask, everybody has a supervisor. So just keep going up the chain and keep going up the chain until you get an answer. And I think along those same lines, um, hopefully you are partnered with a primary care physician, whether that's your family doc, pediatrician, OBGYN, who has an empathetic string towards you, you know, who you feel that you can be honest and transparent with and who you know, is able to believe um, the situation and condition that you're in so that you do have even your healthcare professional being able to advocate for you if you find yourself in in that kind of situation. Um, I know that with my practice, I know it runs a, a little, a lot rather differently than the average family medicine practice, but um, when my patients end up in the ER, I can just pick up the phone and talk to the ER physician myself. Um, So really not saying that your doctor may be able to do that at two in the morning, but um, for you to be able to have someone that can partner like that with you, I think is, is definitely important too. Absolutely. I believe that chronic disease patients such as this benefit from having the types of relationships you can foster with the DPC practice, because you're right. That, primary care doctor becomes their advocate. They don't have so many patients. So they're like, who is this you're talking? They know their patients, the ones who have these types of chronic problems. So I think that that is a great person to be looking for a DPC practice. And real quickly, just so that we don't forget about this part because sickle cell trait and disease can both affect your eyes. And so For children who have sickle cell disease, we start their eye exams no later than 10 years old. So for most kids, just getting a screening at the pediatrician is enough. That'll do it. But for um, kids with sickle cell disease, they need to start getting full eye exams at 10 because these sickle cells, these sticky cells can also affect the very tiny blood vessels in the eye. And they can create a situation where there are certain parts of the eye not getting enough blood. And because our body likes to maintain blood flow, you'll get 
the retina, the back of the eye, creating new blood vessels that are weak, that are prone to bleeding. And so you can get bleeding in the eye that may require laser and other treatments and can cause a decline in vision. So if you have a child with sickle cell uh, and they have not had a full eye exam and they are 10 or over, make sure you get that done for them. And if you are a person with sickle cell trait, because you do have a few of those sickle cells in your in your bloodstream, although it's not the majority of them, you have some, um, then you are also prone to having um, some more minor conditions such as that of the eye. And so you should be sure to have your, your annual eye exams as well. Awesome. Oh, and it's, um, the, just to segue off of that, um, because I think it's so important, just, you know, talking about your kids and dealing with family. Another big thing um, in the obstetrical world is I feel that um, patients don't know their family history. Mm-hmm. They don't know their family history at all. And we could do a whole different live um, on, <laughs> you know, the taboo and all that, uh, especially, you know, people of our hue. Um, for whatever reason, you know, Black people just don't like to spread, especially negative medical history. But it is so important. Um, Next time y'all go, it's the summertime. I know y'all about to have cookouts and barbecues and all that other stuff. (laughs) You know, just ask your family members, you know, especially like your moms, your dads and things like that, brothers and sisters, ask them, you know, do any of y'all have like sickle cell disease, which you would probably know if they have sickle cell disease because those patients, you know, are those persons usually have some illnesses, but hey, do you know sickle cell, you have the sickle cell trait? Those are great questions mm-hmm. to ask because again, it can prompt you to actually go get um, testing. And I was going to say, um, Dr. Anika brought up something very important, which is so amazing that she even thought to do when she found out that she had the sickle cell trait the person that she was thinking about marrying and possibly having children with, she went to get the test that you heard that. That was, I just want to give you an award for that. Um, because it's And so many people don't do that. So many people know that they have the trait. So, you know, they at least got to the point to where they have the trait, but it never occurred to them to say, Hey, this is a person that, you know, I'm having sexual intercourse with. So obviously, you know, all birth control. So if you're having sexual intercourse with this person, you absolutely should go get them tested because what we don't want to do is you come in, now you have the trait, and then after you're pregnant, now we're now testing dad and he has the trait. Now we have a whole, you know, it's a total of 40 weeks, so 10 months of does my baby have sickle cell disease, does it not, you know, a whole instead of enjoying your pregnancy. So I thought that was brilliant that you actually thought to do that because many people don't even know their history. Just don't think to do it. So thank you for doing that. Now, I really hope that classes. If I have <laughs> been exposed and taken all these science classes, getting ready for med school, I can't tell you that I would have known that saying. So yeah, we right. have to just look at the things we've been exposed to because that's mm-hmm. all we have the benefit of using when we have to make these kinds of decisions. So yeah, well, hopefully our viewers being exposed to us. Yeah. I, I, I feel yes. like every time we do this, I get such a nugget. And at least for me, um, I, I hope the people took away that that's just a huge nugget. Just yeah. know your family history. And if mm-hmm. you do know your family history, if you know that you have a trait or something like that, it's so smart just to take your significant other in just to say, let's see what you have. Let's see, you know, what, you know, we could actually pass on to our children. So Absolutely. knowing your family history, I'm telling y'all put, you know, while you in between your ribs and your hot dog, just be like, <laughs> hey, um, Stop talking about macaroni and cheese. I agree. 
Yvonne mm-hmm. says family interviews. And I agree, you know, Dr. Sand, yep. you know, those cookouts, those family dinners are a great opportunity. Yeah. So really, really great opportunity. So, you know, you all, this always goes super fast. We are in the last couple of minutes. I do want to acknowledge Sylvia's question before we hop off. So Sylvia asked about sickle cell trait and how that affects one's health. And, you know, what I will say is that it's very variable. Um, Sylvia, and thank you so much for your question. You know, there are some people with sickle cell trait who have absolutely no symptoms at all. And the only reason they even know they have it is because it's, you know, they were tested as a newborn. There are other people who um, have symptoms in extreme conditions. So we have read stories about people who have done marathons or, you know, extreme physical activity, or they've been at really high altitudes. It's really hot. Um, High altitudes, you're going to have less oxygen. And that has sent them into a full-blown sickle cell crisis. And then I think Dr. Sand mentioned offline that she has a friend with sickle cell trait who has had some um, issues with kidneys. So, you know, we, it's very variable. And so it is important that even if you have the trait that you are aware that you have it. And certainly if you, if you are having conditions, your doctor may not be educated and may think or assume that those symptoms, as you suggest, Sylvia, are not related. So this is where you have to be your own advocate. So, all right, guys, well, we are going to wrap up Thank you all so much for tuning in tonight to The Real Rx. We have enjoyed you. As usual, your comments have been enlightening. Again, we are missing Dr. Kimberly today. She will be back with us next week. I do want to remind you all that this is a podcast. So if you are not yet a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Tell me. What are you waiting for? Go on oh, over Kim's here. here. What would you say? Kim's here. Oh, she's here. Yay. Oh, she just came. So go to your favorite podcast app. And hey, Dr. Kim. Hey. Um, guys, we are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on Google Podcasts. So check us out on your favorite podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you automatically get the, the new episodes, which typically are on the app by the end of the week. Make sure you share this video with your friends and family members, anyone that you know, whether they have sickle cell or not, because we know that when we, you know, if each one of us teaches someone else, this will just spread. And so let me just give Dr. Kim the floor for the very end since she was able to join us. <laughs> well, wait Dr. a minute. Wait. Well, Nicole, you forgot to tell them what is the bonus oh. for them actually coming on the podcast. Yes. Ooh. Thank you, Dr. Sand. So listen. We have a special treat for our podcast subscribers. This is exclusive to our podcast subscribers, and it is called Social Rounds. So at the end of the Facebook Live broadcast, the five of us are just going to, you know, chuckle, have a little fun, talk about some um, things that are in the news, maybe health related, may not have anything at all to do with health. And so if you want to catch the after party, ratchet TV, y'all, it's ratchet TV. That's yeah, it's going to be a little ratchet. <laughs> so if you want to catch the after party social rounds, please subscribe to the podcast. That will only be available on the podcast. So Dr. Kim, why don't you take us out? Man, that's that's hard to, to, to follow up on. I love trash talking, y'all. I love <laughs> I'm, I'm like my own personal Wendy Williams in my head, except for I'm not a cat. Um, but yes, no, I'm sorry. So, so sorry. I couldn't come on earlier. Um, I'm sure you guys told everybody, but I'm at work currently and it's been a little crazy. I had a heart attack come in and it's been a lot of stuff going on. So 
Um, I just wanted to pop in and say that we as ER doctors are really, really, really um, struggling and working to improve our care of sickle cell patients. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes ER physicians have a bad um, taste in their mouth when we see someone that has sickle cell come in because a lot of times um, we just look at them as drug seekers that we have to give them like high doses of pain medication and they don't seem like patients that we see that are typically in pain like their heart rate's not high they don't look like they're in pain they're sometimes they're just sitting on our their phone talking to us um, and we often see them quite frequently like at least a couple of times a month so we feel as though um, we can feel as though that we initially have a bias towards them. So I wanted to come in just to say, you know, as an ER doctor, I'm very aware, especially one of color, I'm very aware that sickle cell disproportionately affects people of color. And I am personally doing what I can to uh, reduce my personal bias of patients with sickle cell disease. But it's a really, it's really sad. It's really unfortunate. We, we have not done enough research um, to really make people's lifespans as long and less painful as possible. I wish that we had um, different ways to help people with pain other than just pumping them full of narcotics, especially with younger children that come in with sickle cell crisis. So I wish I had something else more profound to say, Um, but I'm in the ER just trying to fight on the front lines, try to help people with sickle cell just like everywhere else, but we have some room to grow. But um, look at your ER doctor. If you do have a sickle cell and you do come in pain crisis, look at us as a partner. We are trying. Uh, we are very, very aware of the pain issues that you have, but we want to do the best that we can to affect your, your pain and to treat you well. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Kim. I'm glad that you were able to come on at the end because you just provided a wonderful summary to a lot of it. Oh, yeah, we talked about a lot of that. So that was the perfect Perfect ending. So again, thank you all for tuning in to The Real Rx. We look forward to seeing all of you next Tuesday on Facebook Live at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can catch social rounds. And we'll see you all next week. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.